teachers of religion and told you know, and spoke about being HIV positive to them and about being gay and about my feelings about the virus. And the end of it, the minister who'd arranged this all said, well, does anybody have a response? And this guy got up in the back of the room and said to me, uh, he's a minister of religion, this guy. He says to me, well, all I can say is that you fill me with disgust and loathing. He said, you just make me sick. And he sat down, you know. And it was really a blessed moment for me because I was able with every cell in my body to know that this guy was hurting and this guy was just really so locked in his own prejudices and in his own ignorance and in his own lovelessness that I just really cared about him, you know? And it was like water off a duck's back and the minister came afterwards and was sort of clucking all over me, saying how sorry he was that I could have been so insulted and everything. And I said to him, you know, it didn't touch me. <clears throat> now, I think that the reason for that is that I have, to whatever degree, looked at those parts of myself that could respond in exactly the same way that he responded. And um, so instead of rising with anger, which I might have at one point with this guy, that didn't seem like an option because I knew the pain of the anger that this guy was experiencing. And so I didn't like rise to him. So the one facet of the answer, and it's not the main facet, is that <clears throat> there comes to be some change in one's relationship with situations like that when one has oneself looked and this is not meant as a criticism of you, please understand that. When one has looked at the rapist within oneself and the murderer within oneself and the abuser within oneself and owned that. I mean, the fact that we're abused means that we've been conditioned by that experience, which most often means that we have within us the possibility of doing the same thing again. And so kind of owning the darker side of oneself makes it less threatening in the way that we challenge people or the way we can be with them when that energy comes at us. So that's one facet that I answer. Another part of the answer is that I think that many people are under the misapprehension or the misunderstanding that the meditation turns us into real docile, wishy-washy people that just want to give out love and turn the other cheek, and that, you know, uh, that's what the way of meditation is about. And I think that that's a real grave misunderstanding of the practice. I feel that real meditation practice involves a fierceness of heart where necessary. And I think that if you were to take your white stick and with all the loving kindness in the world beat those guys up, I think that there is a certain amount of wisdom in that. You know, with loving kindness. 
Now, I, you know, I'm not saying that's where we should all live our lives. I'm thinking of a friend of mine who was in Asia, and she was riding in a rickshaw, and this guy jumped up on the rickshaw and started sexually um, violating her and threatening her. And she was so confused. She she just done this retreat, and she was all filled with feelings of loving kindness. And, you know, I've got to project this all-embracing love to all human beings, including this person. And she, she was sort of immobilized by all of that. And when she spoke to her teacher, he said, with all the loving kindness in the world, you should have beaten that guy and thrown him off the rickshaw. You know? So I feel like each situation requires its own response. And what we as meditators have as an advantage is the fact that we look inside of ourselves, are able to see situations more and more clearly, and then respond to them. And, you know, like I've had to accept that living in the world of, of AIDS, that there is gross unfairness in the way we dealt with. I only have to go through the memories of friends who have passed on you know, just to realize the magnitude of the tragedy. And, you know, there's something about being able to kind of acknowledge that, look at it face on, like, this is the state of things, you know, and not rush off and buy a candy bar or something, but just really look at it at some point and then talk as you did now and acknowledge it and hopefully with clear comprehension, discriminating wisdom, loving kindness, be able to respond in that moment more and more forcefully. And knowing your own responses to the situation is going to enable you to respond in the most appropriate way. And it sounds to me like you did great last night, you know? You, I felt out of control. You did? Yeah, because I, I felt that in my heart of hearts, I knew that even though they were threatening to rob me, that that's not what they were going to do. They were just being jerks. However, I wanted them to stop threatening me. Mm. The way that I knew to do that was to turn around and scream, and it would make them run away, which is what I usually do. Yeah. But I felt like I screamed more than I needed to, and longer, and people came out of their houses and said, someone bothered me. And, but I, I felt out of control. Huh. And I guess... You know, I walked for two blocks with them bothering me and not doing anything, and they didn't hurt me, and I felt like I could have just kept walking, and yet I, there's, there's times when I just want this thing to stop, and yet if I'm someone who just kind of exists and then doesn't exist, <laughs> you know what I mean? I feel like, like, you know, like, can I just, I feel like I lose control sometimes in those cases. So that's what I'm just trying to mm. figure out if I, if I can just maintain a sense of myself in the and I also think that you are perhaps using elements of the practice against yourself to not validate the fact that 
these are scary situations and that um, they're really difficult and ones that many of us don't get to have to deal with, you know. I also want to caution you, you know, to use the meditation practice to say, well, if I'm somebody that's arising and vanishing moment after moment, that is a very ultimate kind of point of view. And we need to live in the conventional world. And so it's not like we bring that, that in. That's just a perspective that may or may not be there. But to use it against yourself, I think, is extra too. So if I could just mirror back to you, um, my sense is you're being a little heavy with yourself. I think that the moment those guys start walking behind you and do whatever they're doing, they're assaulting you. I would really love somebody else to respond to this. <laughs> Yay. And then you can look at it as 
if, if someone like me was in that same situation, the same thing would be happening to them also. And it's almost like trying to tell yourself it's not personal. Like, as if there's no who you are, then of course it also follows that it's not happening to you because of who you are. And that's the only way I can see. And on a personal level, it's like I have to say to myself, you know, I haven't got AIDS because I'm a bad person or because I did X, Y, and Z. I have to say I have AIDS because I have AIDS. <laughs> you know, it's like that's what's happening. I could ask you if you could just come out a little so people can see you here. Thanks so much. Yes, Eva. Befriending your fear, befriending your anger, 
or extending loving kindness to it can become another concept of what the perfect relationship should be. And what I've had to work with is myself. And for me, this is certainly as much internal relationships as external. I can't determine what the real relationship is at a given moment. That is as it is. My relationship with my pain or my fear or my anger on a given day may be that I detest it. That the only honest relationship to have with it is a fight, um, is a struggle. Hmm. Um, the next day or the next hour, it may be compassion. But when the idea comes, whether it's with boys harassing you on the street or myself to my own fear that I should be able to love them, and that's not at all where I am on that day, what tends to happen is a sort of frozen standoff, it's, which is very familiar to me from my background, to no one talks to anyone. There's no screaming, there's no fighting, there's nothing obviously ugly, but there is no relationship. There's no growth in it. There's no room for change. So I think sometimes if we really have to opt, all that there is is the ugliness. And I, I was thinking, I work with very disturbed violent adolescents for many years, and they would become threatening. And in a given moment, there was it was a poker game, whether something really was about to happen, physically or not. And for a long time I felt that being professional and doing this well meant that I should maintain a certain kind of calm. After a while I started feeling that that was fake. That the, that the reality of the world is that when you express violence to someone else, they may become very frightened. Um, and that it creates violence. That didn't give me a license to pull out a piece and blow them away. <laughs> you know, but that there is an honesty to the fact that they were affecting me. They were frightening me. Wonderful that you chose not to be alone with your illness. Mm. Um, 
my illness requires me to be alone a lot because I have to be very careful about the environments that I'm in. And when I've tried meditating in the past, I found that it was difficult because when I meditated alone, it made me feel more alone. Mm -hmm. And I wonder how to keep some sense of connectedness and, and, and not feel so alone when I, when I stop and, and go into myself. Because I don't know how much of a community I can enter into right now. How has it been? It's been challenging. Um, um, but I'm grateful that I, you know, we'll see tomorrow how I do. Mm. And I've had a lot of help, and it really makes a difference. Um, so I say it's challenging, and um, I'd like to give you my phone number, and that's how it starts. Mm. been my experience that the one of the effects of the abuse for me was a very isolating effect and I only felt safe when I was on my own because any proximity with people was very threatening to me and um, I encourage you to explore the connection because I think one of the healings for me that's come out of the practice has been the arising of the first healthy sense of community that I've ever had. And as I journey with this virus, one absolute 
indisputable truth of this journey is that I don't feel alone in it. I feel very held and loved in many different ways as I live and struggle with it. And so I would also like to say that I would be very happy to maybe talk on the phone and see together also if, we, if I could maybe support you in some way. And I do know that you know Narayan and is that true? I'm sorry. No, no, oh, oh, I'm sorry. Um, that community in this tradition is regarded as one of the gems of the spiritual path. And for so many of us who've come from backgrounds and home situations where community wasn't always healthy, that for many of us we're beginning to know healthy community for the first time. And so my prayer is that there might be some way that you can know that too in your circumstance. Because I can certainly say that for me, my situation is somewhat unusual in the community too. There aren't, there are more and more people who are HIV positive in the Dharma or in the Buddhist community. But when I came out, I was certainly one of the few, and yet there's been a wholehearted reaching out and holding of me that's happened. So my experience with this community is that it's really sure and true, and that I hope that you can feel that also. Let's exchange telephone numbers afterwards. Mm. We talk a lot about fear. Mm. Well, the emotion that came up for me was guilt. Okay. And I was grappling with it because what I found myself doing was feeling guilt and then trying to fix it and getting off into the whole psychology and then coming back and realizing what I was doing. But I was sort of caught in a spiral of trying to get it out of the way so I could move on to the next step. And of course, it kept coming back. Mm. And I was really struggling with it. How do you, were you able to be that aware that you could actually experience it? I mean, how, how do you experience guilt in the body? I actually was paying attention to where it was in where, the body, because then I was connected to anger, it was connected to everything. Yeah. The guilt was the part that I felt responsible, and it was like, you know, in my, in my gut. In your gut? I was feeling responsible. Was it sort of tight, or was it throbbing, or what? Do you hear the tone of your description of it? Right now? Yeah. Or would anybody like to reflect it back? I mean, this is really great. I mean, I heard that the guilt wasn't okay. That's what I heard. I heard that you wanted to change it, you wanted to resolve it, you wanted to get over it so you could do something else. No, it didn't feel Yeah. Well... It was like getting caught. I mean, I was getting in the way of my meditation. Oh. Oh. It was really getting in the way. Of what? Getting in the way of coming back to just feeling 
Maybe why you see, um, I remember once I said uh, on my first meditation retreat with Joseph, I said to him, "I love sitting. I hate walking." I said, "I hate walking. I just want to sit all day." And he said to me, "Hmm." He said, "Well, if I had my own way," he said, "You'd do nothing but walking meditation all day." And so I'm going to say to you. <laughs> that maybe you need to do nothing but guilt meditation because it sounds like guilt is not okay and yet it's a part of the drama of being human. We all feel guilty and to just be okay with guilt, to sort of throw your hands in the air and say, let me die of guilt, I'll die of guilt, you know, get me and just be that okay with there being guilt, is the beginning of making it workable. But if you're looking at it with the agenda of sorting it out and getting rid of it so that you can meditate, do you hear as I reflect back to you, it's just loaded. I mean, I do it, you know, I mean, I do it. So that's why it's so easy to reflect back. You know, it's, it's just loaded with aversion. And if we're pushing away something, then we're just exacerbating it, you know. We, we all have tendencies of mind that predominate. Like some people are more aversion people, some people are more clinging people, some people are just sort of spacey and dull kinds of people. Some of us are all of those, you know. And it might be that guilt is a real big one for you, you know. So it might be that that really working with it and getting down to it might just bring a lot of freedom, you know? Sounds like you, you had a good shot of it. I mean, it sounds like you really understood it. <laughs> Sometimes it's called a multiple hindrance attack. When you, when you have pain and guilt and anger and shame and, you know, everything just comes at once. Doubt, you know. It's just like, oh, let me get out of here, you know. Sounds like you had a little bit of one of those. But you're still here. <laughs> it's the walking, yeah. I, no, I hate that walking, too. You're right. <laughs> there we are. Right. <laughs> so if someone was to um, follow that direction and say, do adult meditation or really mm. try to go with one emotion, what does that look like and how is that different from what instruction we Well, I was, I was sort of being a little bit facetious. But what I'm saying is that is that obviously the guilt was predominant. So the meditation instruction is to, as much as possible, give bare attention to the experiencing of guilt. And that would mean going to the breath to stabilize, to collect the mind, because usually when there's a strong emotion, you might have found, there's a lot of thinking, you know, all these thoughts start coming. 
and, and that destabilizes the concentration. So I would either go to the breath or sometimes even go to just the sitting posture to stabilize, to get settled, and then take that stability and that settlement to the guilt and be with it, be with it, be with it. You'll find there'll be thoughts, you'll be all over the place, then you feel, I'm too scattered, back to the breath. So it's really the same practice. Well, no, because, you see, the thinking is extra. What we're trying to do is get down to the bare experiencing of the guilt. How do we experience guilt? Because usually, like, my guess is that guilt for you is real loaded. Guilt comes with something that happened involving my father, and it was at school, and it was terrible, and I remember the last time I had it, and all of that, which is all thoughts, which is all extra. If we can... Let the thoughts go when they arrive, not hit them, you know. Some people, like, they think meditation is about having a sledgehammer with thoughts, you know. Boom, you know, I got it, you know. (laughs) It's not that. It's more allowing the thoughts to happen and getting down to what is the truth of this experience, getting down to the tightness, as you were describing, the tension, the, oh, there's a thought. Oh, pulling, pulling, pulling. And what that does is it begins to exercise that quality of mind that enables us to be with situations without getting totally lost in them. So indulging the thoughts is not the practice. Uh, Generating thoughts is not the practice. But when thoughts arise, that's just a part of being a human being. Letting them, acknowledge them, letting go. Just like thoughts are no more personal than the clouds in the sky or, or a bird outside. No more personal. We think we are the thoughts. Who is it that said, I think, therefore I am? Descartes. Yeah. Well, I don't know. How, I don't think he was right, you know. <laughs> but we have such a... a um, I want to say idolatry of thoughts. It's like thoughts have become so predominant in us that to a large extent they are the way we create a self, you know. And so just seeing them as empty is very freeing. It's such a relief to know that I'm not all these crazy thoughts that come and go, you know, that they're just clouds, you know. But it's more kind of a knowing than a talking about, you know? That's why the practice is so experiential. And the Buddha said in that quote I read at the beginning, believe nothing that anybody tells you, not your teacher, your parents, nothing. But look for yourself what's true. And when you find that path, follow it like the moon follows the stars, you know? What is a thought? Who's angry? Who's hurting? Now, I do want to say that according to the schedule, if we're going to be fastidious and proper, the schedule says that there's a break from a quarter to five till five, because from five o'clock will be the sort of closing of the retreat. However, I'm happy to go on with questions and answers if you are agreeable, and we can 
reduce the break to five minutes and just have a stretch. So it's up to you. Are there any more issues? This one, did you have a question? Yeah. <laughs> Seems like a kind of strange thing to say, but this is the first time I've had an experience like this. I mean, it's not like this, but I have tried to do Panamanian and different types of meditation of some sort before. And, and mostly, I mean, I do okay with the breathing to a certain extent, but mostly when I am in an experience like this, I can't really separate it and say, I can't do this. <laughs> and I end up spending a lot of time dealing with the fact that I don't feel like I can do this. <laughs> and then I know that that's not the right thing to do, but <laughs> so, so you sort of find yourself in a cycle of trying to do it and then criticizing yourself when you're not doing it right. Was there any part of the meditation instructions that were unclear to you? That were what? Unclear? Uh, yes, unclear. Um, not, not specifically. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't sure if, if I caught the very beginning, so I wasn't sure if when I came in, you'd already started some, right. you know, what I missed or something. But I mean, as far as specifically what I heard, I don't think there was anything that mm. was unclear. And I think that, that I put myself in situations like this because I think if I could do something like this, it would be good for me. But most of the time, I end up well, let me tell you that I suspect that if we ask the people in this room who really felt that they did it right today, who really feels like they did it right today, who really who had a blissful day where you were able to do it exactly as it was presented? <laughs> now, I'll tell you also that there are a lot of people in this room who've meditated a long time. So I'll ask the question again, including those people. <laughs> it's really true in my experience that many of us one of the ways that we hurt is that we're so self-critical and that we never give ourselves a break. And that one of the ways we do that is in situations like this, we spend a lot of time criticizing ourselves because we think that everybody else is having a great time and I'm the only one that's suffering. 
There was somebody else who came to me today and said to me that she, she felt like she was really doing it wrong because it was really hard. And I said to her that I would ask today who had a blissful time here. So, is there anybody that had a blissful time today? It's really hard what we're doing, and I feel like part of what we see is how harsh we are on ourselves. And the loving-kindness practice and the forgiveness practice that we'll be doing at the end is kind of the... um, the underbelly of tenderness that is also a part of this practice. That we come to see things about ourselves that are difficult, and the loving-kindness and the forgiveness help us accept that so that we can move beyond it. And I'd like to suggest that what you were experiencing today was what all of us experience, is that we're hard on ourselves and we don't give ourselves a break. And I think it's really neat that you brought that up because it hasn't been brought up and it's very important. I would suggest that that perhaps ought to be part of your presentation because certainly I felt the same way. You know, I'm the kind of person who always sticks it out to the bitter end and grumbles about it to myself for weeks after. <laughs> <laughs> and I was perfectly prepared to do that. Mm. And my sense is that maybe a few others, you know, who either left early or, or are still here who feel that way. Mm. It's sort of like the psychology of the mind is to is to say that we screwed it up all day long, mm. you know, and everybody else seemed to be doing fine, but I didn't get it. Mm. So it seems, so my suggestion would be to help folks like me out, if you just say, you know, look at your mind is going to tell you you're not doing it right mm. all day long. Mm. <laughs> and you're still doing it right. <laughs> <laughs> There's also a lot of wisdom in really feeling how painful it is that we do that, you know. So maybe you really suffered enough today so that you'll never do it again. <laughs> and if I'd taken you off the hook earlier, you wouldn't have suffered quite this much. I hear what you're saying, and that's important. Thank you. I just want to respond to, to what you're saying as well, because there were parts of today where I thought I really couldn't do it, and I didn't. And that was really helpful to me. I did end the table, you know, a while. But that was just really what I needed to do, and it was really helpful to just, I don't think, for me, it's not helpful to just open to everything and get really overwhelmed. Or to open to everything and, you know, be full of pain and whatever. Um, so, I mean, for me, if I need to take a break, I need to take a break, and that's just what I do, and I need to react to it. And, there are some of those feelings, oh, I can't, I'm not, I'm a failure, but I don't know. There's also just, I think, more and more of this big acceptance. I'm just going to make this work for me however I need to or however I can. I'm just going to find my own way, and that's just the right way for me. Uh, last question. It's really just a comment. Some of it was just brought up, but... Um, Just 
just the you know the continual self-judging and feeling like my reactions are opposite to what you may or may not believe they should be, not not should be, but um, like I tend to think um, I know the world is really busy, and um, you know in meditation we try to sort of calm that some or still that, and yet. The first time we went for a walking meditation, I was just filled with, because I spent a lot of time at home alone in bed too, and it was like, I've been outside maybe five days this whole summer, mm -hmm. spring until now, and you know, the birds and the nice weather, I was just like, like, like it was an onslaught of senses and thoughts and stuff, and it didn't last too long because I was using So, I mean, I guess I'm just adding my voice to thanks other people. So, mm. I really struggle with that too. Like, I'm doing it different, or mm. I have all these needs, and, and yet this is the most accessible type of thing I've ever been to, and many I haven't even tried to go to because I just know I would feel totally different and just wouldn't work physically. So, um, so I guess I'm just saying a thank you to people mm. that, that did work. It was confusing. It was a very mixed day. After lunch, I felt so sick. I felt like I was going to pass out. It's like, I'm leaving. Forget, you know. But um, I guess, you know, I just need to hear continually, too, not to judge and, you know, whatever. It's okay to close down some, which I did. And, yeah. And all that. It's just so important to me. Thank you. Well, so would you like to take a few minutes just to stretch and, and we'll get back together soon in about four minutes or so. <clears throat> you must be so sick of my voice by now. <laughs> I thought I would put on my freedom rings for the last uh, hour. I don't know if, if those of you who don't know, these are a further symbol of gay uh, diversity and pride. And, is that right? So I thought it would be a little too flamboyant for the retreat, but I could, could sort of end with a little color. <laughs> Probably jingle nicely on the tape. <laughs> Well, um, there's an all-star lineup for the last for the for the last session. Um, Arachne and Marcia and Narayan are going to you're going to work together to to close the retreat. The closing is really important because essentially what we're addressing now is how it is that we're going to take what it is that we've done here into our life. Because it's really the extent to which that happens that today in the end has meaning. It's been wonderful being together. We'll never ever be together in exactly the same configuration again, and that's so special. 
And so the question then becomes how it is that what is special about today can be taken out and can blossom in our lives. Thank you. I also would like to acknowledge Arachne's part in today. It was her idea that this retreat should happen. And she approached me after we both sat the three-month course at IMS last year and said that this was her hope that it might be possible to do this retreat. So without her vision and without her energy, we'd not be here today. I just want to acknowledge that. How do we take this out now into the world? I've, I've asked actually Arachne if she, would, if she would share with us her feelings on bringing this practice alive in, in the greater world out there. Well, as Gavin's emphasized all day, um, meditation is not a withdrawal from life, and it doesn't happen only on the cushion. The purpose of meditation clearly is to wake up, and that waking up helps us to participate in life more fully with greater awareness and compassion. So the waking up can happen anywhere, in any moment, even outside of retreats like this. The primary way that I think we wake up is through the quality of mindfulness or bare attention that's been what we've been working with all day long. It's the clear seeing that mindfulness brings that helps us to choose um, actions and attitudes more skillfully that can bring about more happiness and peace for ourselves and for other people. One of the beauties of the practice is that nothing is outside of the realm of mindfulness. We can use it for anything and everything. When we leave here, we can use mindfulness in our, you know, where we go, when we go home, we can use it in our work lives, um, in our playtime, in our, you know, for our bodily lives. We can use it for everything. There's nothing that's not part of our awakening. So the question is, how do we bring mindfulness to all of this and not end the retreat here? I think most people find that it's really helpful to have a daily sitting practice at home. Um, Sitting once or twice a day can just be really helpful in sustaining that quality of mindfulness. Many people sit first in the morning um, to set that tone for the rest of the day. And then if you can do it again, even if it's just for a few moments later on in the day, it'll help to remember and sustain the quality. Sometimes people like to be practice mindfulness just a little bit right before going to bed, sort of rounding out 
the fulfillment of the commitment to being aware. Other things that help to maintain a daily sitting practice is to sit at a regular time each day. Because I think myself and many other people find that if we're trying to fit sitting in anew each day, where are we going to squeeze it in today, given our schedule, chances are it'll get squeezed out. And prioritizing it and being regular about it helps maintain the regular discipline. It also helps to have a regular spot, even if it's just a small spot on the floor, or a chair near your favorite plant, or even a whole room, whatever the spot is, it's the regularity that I think contributes to helping us keep the sitting going. Because in daily life, a regular sitting practice, you know, has its ups and downs, just like it has throughout the day here. Um, And I think for myself that there's a lot to be gotten by sticking with it through the ups and the downs and seeing what comes out on the other side. And still, as I've said, you know, most of our lives is off the cushion. So what do we do after that daily sitting practice is done with? Um, To be mindful of all of our activities during regular life, one of the things that really helps is to choose just one or two regular things you do every day, simple mundane things, and use these activities as a cue for waking up. For instance, something like brushing your teeth. You might do that two or three times a day, But generally, it's a time when many of us just sort of space out or think about something else or plan or worry. Um, But it's something we do often. So a different approach could be, let's say, being aware of your hand reaching for the toothbrush, being aware of the feel of the handle as you touch it, of your arm moving up and down or back and forth as you're brushing, the taste of the paste in your mouth or the feeling of rinsing the toothpaste out. It could be then that you have two or three times in the day when there's been a few moments of real presence and alertness. And that can carry over. That can remind you. Other examples of activities that you might choose are, let's say, reaching for a doorknob. I mean, how many doorknobs do you touch in a day? Quite a few, probably. Um, You can be aware of the arm reaching, the touching, the turning, the pulling, the letting go. Um, People who walk, um, that's a good activity. You might be going to a grocery store just to pick up an extra roll of toilet paper. You don't have to walk like a snail. You can just walk at your normal pace, but be really aware of the movement of the right leg and then the left, then the right and the left. And by the time you've gotten home from the grocery store, you've had 15 minutes of meditation. And nobody has to know, you know? (laughs) Um, Ringing the telephone is a good idea. Sometimes when the phone rings, you know, you can just lunge for the receiver. It's sort of a panic moment or something. Instead, how about if the phone rings and you use that as a mindfulness cue, you could be aware of, say, three breaths, spend some time with them, and then calmly pick the receiver up. 
or a traffic light is usually a cue, a red light could be a cue for impatience. But instead you might want to be aware of the sound around you, the hearing, or again of the breath. So those are some examples of the kinds of activities to choose. Um, Being mindful of mundane tasks like this, for me, has had two important values. One is, as I've already mentioned, it just stabilizes and calms the mind and helps me sustain mindfulness during the day. And another is that it really helps me to embrace all of life. Because, you know, so much of our lives are really very mundane. And I think that in this culture, for sure, there's like a hierarchy of what's important. You know, for instance, work is more important than folding your shirt and putting it away in the drawer. And so we pay more attention to the things that are considered more important, and we block out the other stuff. And we're missing out on a lot of life that way. Um, I think... You know, because of the illness that I have, I've spent years at a time um, being inside a lot and not able to do much. And so most of my life became these mundane tasks. And I know that a lot of people with illnesses and disabilities, you can, you know, and probably everyone at some point in your life will go through a period where going to the bathroom, feeding yourself, getting dressed, can be all you have the time and energy to do. And so if we have a hierarchy that says going to work is more important than folding our shirt or going to the bathroom, we're really in big trouble then. So for me, during those times, especially when my life is so quiet, being mindful of those daily tasks has really deepened my intimacy with myself and my daily experience. And in that way, I've felt, as time has gone on, somewhat less isolation because I've felt so close to my actual moment-to-moment world. And I think that in the past, where most of my happiness seemed to come from trying to get what I want or avoid what I didn't want, as time's gone on, I've experienced a deeper happiness and joy in the beauty of just having a relationship of openness and acceptance and closeness with whatever it is that's coming up, even if what's coming up is really pretty unpleasant. There's some kind of joy about the acceptance of that that seems to go past it at times. And it's not about getting angry at myself at the times when there's no joy and no acceptance. It's just opening to that that too. That's part of the process. So I guess... I guess that's the last thought I'd want to leave, just as we were talking before about, you know, how this can't be done perfectly on the sitting cushion. Everyone noticed that it couldn't be done perfectly today. Being mindful of the daily tasks that we do and our work lives and our relationships and all of that, 
can't be done perfectly either by a long shot. One of the things that helps me to maintain some patience with it is to remember that this is called a practice. And I guess the reason it's called a practice is because it can't ever be perfected. That being human, I would assume that everybody at some point is going to lapse into moments of not being totally there. So a lot of patience is really in order. Um, One thing I think about is that I think whoever said one day at a time was on the right track, but that's way too ambitious for me. You know, it's more like one moment at a time is about as much as I can handle, and it's really all that's necessary. Certainly, one of the ways that we can support the meditation practice is doing exactly what we've done here today. Come together with others. This is particularly special in that there are so many of us that share similar issues here. And there are many places and many possibilities to come together in different ways, in different configurations and to hold one another, take refuge in one another, be together in silence, be alone together. And Marcia and Narayan both are associated with retreat centers that offer very different possibilities in terms of supporting people in the practice and in doing what we do here in their lives. And so, I'm going to ask both Narayan and Masir if each of them would speak a little of uh, the centers with which they're associated. Uh, I live at the Insight Meditation Center, which is in Barrie, Massachusetts. Some of you know of it, I know. Um, Insight Meditation Society. It's about an hour and a half west and a little bit north of here. Hour and a half to two hours. Uh, It's a residential meditation center, and we offer anything from a weekend to a three-month retreat, which Gavin mentioned a little while ago. The three-month retreat starts, actually, in about a week, two weeks. It's a large center. We can accommodate up to about 100 people at a retreat. Some retreats are full and some have as few as 20, 25 people. Uh, You're all welcome to come and sit there. There also is a scholarship fund uh, for people that need financial help and I don't think anyone's ever refused financial help who asks for it, who's in need. So please, if that's uh, something appropriate for you, that is available. It's a very rural, very beautiful uh, 
area of Massachusetts. Acres and acres and acres of trees. The center itself is on 80 acres of a pine forest, huge old pine trees. Uh, it's a peaceful place, and uh, it's also been called the um, best vegetarian restaurant in Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's wonderful food there. <laughs> so you get well taken care of, well fed. Um, it's, it's very special to practice, to come and practice if this, if this uh, practice today has been something that feels like you, something you'd like to pursue more deeply. It's, it's really special to come to a place where you can let go of your, of your everyday uh, stuff that you have to do and responsibilities and schedules as you've done today, but to do it for either a weekend or as long as up to three months. It's uh, precious time to be taken care of, all your, your needs met in terms of your physical needs, and just to participate in your own process. Um, the word that Arachne used, or one word that she used, was the intimacy of it, that you really, in, in a period of time when you have, when you have more time, the depth of intimacy with life, with who you are, can grow uh, quite a bit in that kind of a situation. So I really welcome you to come and spend some time with us. I brought a bunch of, a bunch of brochures uh, that will be on the table. I guess we're going to bring it in here, so you're welcome to take, take, take one and look. There's also a newsletter the most recent newsletter from the Society, and there's a newspaper also that is the Vipassana community newspaper uh, that is not just from, from uh, the Insight Meditation Society, but from many different, there's many articles from different places. It's actually printed in California. There's another uh, place that's connected to the Insight Meditation Society called the Study Center. I wasn't able to bring any brochures because we didn't have enough. But if you're interested, it's, a, it's a, basically a weekend kind of group. We, they meet mostly just for short weekends. Gavin did a teaching there for a weekend. If you're interested, and it's more of a combination of study and sitting, it's not just meditation, but there's either particular topics that it's uh, oriented towards, particular writings that it might be oriented towards, and it's a combination of a, more of a study and uh, meditation weekend. So if you're interested in that, um, you can call and ask for, to be on the mailing list for that also. So I hope to see some of you, or all of you, at some point there. Some of you have already seen there. I'm sure I'll see you again. Marcia mentioned the word Vipassana, which you haven't heard today. 
that is the classical word used to describe the meditation that we do here, which is also called insight meditation. The Cambridge Insight Meditation Center, um, otherwise known as CIMC, is very close to here. It's about a 15-minute walk from here, or a five-minute car ride. And it's a big old house that was renovated. Um, It's a very comfortable kind of place to be. It's probably the only place in Cambridge or further out from Cambridge that has a whole room that we call the walking room. This is not a common thing to find in a building. We have a walking room and we have a lot of cushions around. And other than that, it's, it's a very, very simple place. That's about it. Um, a small library, a very good library on the second floor, and tapes that can be taken out. It's a non-residential center, a non-residential meditation center. And the emphasis is very much on bringing the practice out into one's life. We obviously treasure the sitting and treasure the simplicity of the form of both sitting and walking. But it's very much a place to um, work with questions around how does this really, truly, deeply affect my life, my work life, my relationship life. Um, These are the questions that arise and that are worked with very much. Um, It's our our strong intent at CIMC to um, mostly work with people who who are in the world and um, very much in the world and um, how to really bring the practice into life in a very real way, whatever one's life consists of just to make the distinction, what I meant by the world, um, I just mean that some people make the choice to go, to do this practice for long amounts of time, or to um, ordain, become a a monk or a nun, something like this. And um, at CIMC, it's, it's an everyday practice orientation. Maybe I'll just mention there's a Tuesday night class that is a drop-in. It's from 6 o'clock until 7.15, relentlessly every Tuesday, except for one in the year. And you're very welcome to drop in anytime you'd like. There's no commitment necessary for this particular class. Um, There are also talks on Wednesday evenings, a variety of teachers. Um, Many teachers from the Insight Meditation Society teach at CIMC, and we at CIMC also teach at the Insight Meditation Society, so there's a real flow between the two. Um, So the talks on Wednesday night, there are a variety of people who express the Dharma in their own way, in various ways, with different kinds of vocabulary. And... um, Afterwards is the time to have tea together. It's, it's a place in which community is being nurtured, too. I think it's very, very hard to do this practice alone. It's possible, maybe, for one person in 10, 100 million. 
But I think that um, we need one another and that um, we're in a very rich area. If one is interested in, in what has happened today, we're in a very rich area to continue to practice and that um, there is guidance and there is support and there is friendship possible. One among many of the reasons that I came today was just so that if any of you came over, you'd find a familiar face. Um, I'm there a great deal of the time. So I hope to see you. I'd like to sort of somewhat formally really thank both Narayan and Marcia for being here today and being two very present and true friends in the evolution of this process. What we've done here today has not ever been done before in the insight meditation history in the United States. And so in a way, it's been a pioneering day. And for me, it's been made so much easier and so much more fun doing it with these two wonderful women and good friends and Dharma sisters. Thank you very much. Okay. Sort of got the spotlight on me here. Did you plan it this way, George? It's not even there. (laughs) One of the most inspiring aspects of the meditation for me is its utter simplicity in our willingness to be present so much is possible in the natural unfolding of the practice healing happens on so many different levels and perhaps one of the most important levels of this healing is the healing out of insensitivity and a healing into a sensitivity of our bodies and our minds that is potentially deeply freeing. Sensitivity to our body. Well, we can simply become more and more clearly aware of the needs and limitations that are there. And we're then able to respond more appropriately with less fear and less anger and more love to what it is that is the truth of our bodies. Living less in conflict and more in harmony with the change that we find there is an act of immeasurable compassion towards ourselves. Living in alignment with the truth that we are all getting older, we're all aging, that all of us are likely at some point or other to get sick, that at some point we are going to die. Being more at peace with these truths of humanity is a very generous and wonderful gift that we can potentially give ourselves. Sensitivity to the body. And then there's sensitivity to the mind, to the heart. We come with the deepening of this quality of sensitivity 
to know the shadings and clouds of the mind in ways that we'd not been aware of before. And what this means is we become less and less a victim of these clouds when they pass through. We come to hear the muffled whispers playing below the surface, below our worldly persona. And this can be so freeing. We come to hear what has been called the unfinished symphony. The unfinished symphony of unfulfilled dreams, of uncompleted lives, of shattered hopes, of dreams that never came true. We come to feel the pain, too, of all that is unapproached and unresolved within ourselves. And all this can create such a holding and such a cramping around our hearts. For some of us, what is also true is we come to know a great heaviness of heart, a protectiveness and a closedness, designed by a child determined never ever to be hurt again. And what is true is that this heaviness of heart can be so dense that there is no way for our great light to shine through and for our great voices to be heard. And so the question for us here today is, can we get closer to this symphony, to this heaviness of heart? Can we get so close that we can say yes to the fear? Yes to the anger. Yes to the pain. Yes to the grief and to the sadness. It is true that this path of meditation, what we've been doing here today, brings us closer and closer to the domain of the heart. But often it is the practice of forgiveness and loving-kindness that can ease our way gently into the center. I feel it vital to emphasize that when considering forgiveness, not on any level is there implied a condoning of something that never ever should have happened. How could we possibly say yes to abuse, yes to torture, yes to murder and to oppression and to discrimination? Rather, forgiveness is a strength and a power and a maturity of heart that can bring profound and deep healing on every level. So I'd like to close the retreat with a forgiveness and a loving-kindness meditation. In the natural unfolding of this meditation that we've been doing here today, we must come upon places of great joy and calm and contentment 
even fleeting moments of these qualities perhaps. And so too we may take some sharp turns into unexpected places of great suffering and pain and confusion that leave us feeling heartbroken and alone. The utterly simple practice of being present and awake to the essence of each moment is all that is necessary to open us to the deepest mysteries of life and the greatest secrets and freedoms possible for any human being born on this exquisite planet. And there are qualities of the heart that serve this process of healing and deepening of understanding. And with the practice of the meditations related to these qualities, we access the capacities of our great hearts to dwell in loving-kindness, forgiveness, compassion, joy in the happiness of others, and equanimity. The development of these qualities of the heart enables us to bring them forth in times of pain and difficulty and challenge. They're not a substitute for insight meditation. They are a support and friend of the process of insight. I personally work a lot with forgiveness meditation. You may wish to experiment in your own lives with forgiveness and with a loving-kindness meditation and find a configuration that works for you. You may in the morning want to start with a little forgiveness and then do insight or do insight in a little loving-kindness. Here too the challenge is to make these practices workable in your own life. With all these qualities of the heart, there are times when they are present and there are times when they're not. That's the way of things. And opening to the pain of a heart that is closed, for whatever reason, is a part of the meditation practice too. What is important is the willingness or the intention to forgive, to love, or to care. And the forces of the heart will then arise in their own time, like the unfolding of a beautiful flower. No shoulds, no timetable, no agenda. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.